0: Abgenommen, bedauert. It's a Nebula Award Best Short Story of 1965 by Harlan Ellison. Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. There are always those who ask, what is it all about? For those who need to ask, for those who need points sharply made, who need to know where it's at, this... The mass of men serve the state thus, not as men mainly, but as machines with their bodies. They are the standing army, the militia, jailers, constables, posse, comitatus, etc. In most cases, there's no free exercise, whatever, of the judgment or of the moral sense. But they put themselves on a level with wood and earth and stones. And wooden men can perhaps be manufactured that will serve the purposes as well such command no more respect than men of straw or a lump of dirt. They have the same sort of worth only as horses and dogs. Yet such as these even are commonly esteemed good citizens. Others, as most legislators, politicians, lawyers, ministers, and office holders, serve the state chiefly with their heads, and as they rarely make any moral distinctions, they are as likely to serve the devil without intending it. As God, a very few, as heroes, patriots, martyrs, reformers in the great sense, and men, serve the state with their consciences also, and so necessarily resist it for the most part, and they are commonly treated as enemies by it. Henry David Thoreau, from Civil Disobedience. That's the heart of it. Now begin in the middle, and later... Learn the beginning. The end will take care of itself. But because it was the very world it was, the very world they had allowed it to become, for months his activities did not come to the alarmed attention of the ones who kept the machine functioning smoothly, the ones who poured the very best butter over the cams and mainsprings of the culture. Not until it had become obvious that somehow, some way, he had become a notoriety, a celebrity, perhaps even a hero for what officialdom inescapably tagged in emotionally disturbed segment of the populace, did they turn it over to the TikTok man and his legal machinery. But by then, because it was the very world it was, and they had no way to predict he would happen, possibly a strain of disease, long defunct now, suddenly reborn in a system where immunity had been forgotten, had lapsed, he had been allowed to become too real. Now he had form and substance. He had become a personality, something they had filtered out of the system many decades ago. But there it was, and there he was, a very definitely imposing personality. In certain circles, middle class circles, it was thought disgusting, vulgar ostentation, anarchistic, shameful. In others, there was only sniggering, those strata where thought is subjugated to form and ritual niceties, proprieties. But down below, ah, uh, down below, where the people always needed their saints and sinners, their bread and circuses, their heroes and villains, he was considered a Bolivar, a Napoleon, a Robin Hood, a Dick Bong, Ace of Aces, a Jesus, a Yomo Kenyatta. And at the top, where, like socially attuned shipwrecked Kelly's, Every tremor and vibration threatens to dislodge the wealthy, powerful, and from their flagpoles. He was considered a menace, a heretic, a rebel, a disgrace, a peril. He was known down the line, to the very heart core, but the important reactions were high above and far below, at the very top, at the very bottom. So his file was turned over along with his time card and his cardio plate, to the office of the Tick-Tock Man. The Tick-Tock Man, very much over six feet tall, often silent, a soft, purring man when things went time-wise. The Tick-Tock Man. Even in the cubicles of the hierarchy, where fear was generated seldom suffered, he was called the Tick-Tock Man, but no one called him that to his mask. You don't call a man a hated name, not when that man behind his mask is capable of revoking the minutes, the hours, the days, the nights, the years of your life. He was called the master timekeeper to his mask. It was safer that way. This is what he is, said the TikTok man with genuine softness but not who he is. This time card I'm holding in my left hand has a name on it, but it is the name of what he is, not who he is. This cardio plate here in my right hand is also named, but not whom named, merely what named. Before I can exercise proper revocation. I have to know who this what is. To his staff, all the ferrets, all the loggers, all the finks, all the comics, even the minis, he said, Who is this Harlequin? He wasn't purring smoothly. Time-wise, it was a jangle. However, it was the longest single speech. They had ever heard him utter at one time. The staff, the ferrets, the loggers, the finks, the comics. But not the minis, who usually weren't around to know in any case. But even they scurried to find out. Who is the Harlequin? High above the third level of the city... He crouched on the humming aluminum frame platform of the airboat. Poof, airboat indeed. Swizzle skid is what it was, with a rack jerry-rigged, and stared down at the neat Mondrian arrangement of the buildings. Somewhere nearby, he could hear the metronomic left-right-left of the 2.47 p.m. shift entering the Timken roller bearing plant in their sneakers. A minute later, precisely, he heard the softer... Right, left, right Of the 5 a.m. formation going home An elfish grin spread across his tanned features And his dimples appeared for a moment Then scratching at a thatch of auburn hair He shrugged within his motley As though girding himself for what came next And threw the joystick forward And bent into the wind as the airboat dropped He skimmed over a sidewalk purposely dropping a few feet to crease the tassels of the ladies of fashion and inserting thumbs and large ears. He stuck out his tongue, rolled his eyes, and went wugga wugga wugga. It was a minor diversion. One pedestrian skittered and tumbled, sending parcels every which way. Another wet herself a third keeled slantwise, and the walk was stopped automatically by the servitors until she could be resuscitated. It was a minor diversion. Then he swirled away on a vagrant breeze and was gone. Hi ho As he rounded the corners of the time motion study building, he saw the shift just boarding the slide walk. With practiced motion and an absolute conservation of movement, they sidestepped up onto the slow strip and, in a chorus line reminiscent of a Busby Berkeley film of the antediluvian 1930s, advanced across the strips ostrich-walking till they were lined up on the express trip. Once more, in anticipation, the elfin grin spread, and there was a tooth missing back there on the left side. He dipped, skimmed, and swooped over them. And then, scrunching about on the airboat, he released the holding pins that fastened shut the ends of the homemade pouring troughs that kept his cargo from dumping prematurely. And as he worked the trough pins, The airboat slid over the factory workers and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of jelly beans cascaded down on the express trip. Jelly beans. Millions and billions of purples and yellows and greens and licorice and grape and raspberry and mint and round and smooth and crunchy outside and soft, mealy inside and sugary and bouncing, jouncing, tumbling, clittering, clattering, skittering, fell on the heads and shoulders and hard hats and care of the can workers, tinkling on the slide walk and bouncing away and rolling about underfoot and filling the sky on their way down with all the colors of joy and childhood and holidays, coming down in a steady rain, a solid wash, a torrent of colors and sweetness out of the sky from above, and entering a universe of sanity and metronomic order with quite mad cuckoo newness, jelly beans. The shift workers howled and laughed and were pelted and broke ranks, and the jelly beans, managed to work their way into the mechanism of the slide walks, after which there was a hideous scraping as the sound of a million fingernails rasped down a quarter of a million blackboards, followed by a coughing and a sputtering. And then the slide walks all stopped, and everyone was dumped, this-away and that-away in a jack-straw tumble, and still laughing and popping little jelly bean eggs of childish color into their mouths. It was a holiday, and a jollity. An absolute insanity, a giggle, but the shift was delayed seven minutes. They did not get home for seven minutes. The master schedule was thrown off by seven minutes. Quotas were delayed by inoperative flight walks for seven minutes. He had tapped the first domino in the line, and one after another, like... Chick-chick-chick, the others had fallen. The system had been seven minutes' worth of disrupted. It was a tiny matter, one hardly worthy of note, but in a society where the single driving force was order and unity and promptness and clock-like precision and attention to the clock, reverence of the gods of the passage of time, it was a disaster of major importance. So he was ordered to appear before the TikTok man. It was broadcast across every channel of the communications web. He was ordered to be there at seven, damn it, on time. And they waited and they waited. But he didn't show up until almost ten thirty at which time he merely sang a little song about moonlight in a place no one had ever heard of called Vermont and vanished again. But they had all been waiting since seven, and it wrecked hell with their schedules. So the question remained, Who is the Harlequin? But the unasked question, more important of the two, was... How did we get into this position where a laughing, irresponsible japer of Jabberwocky and Jive could disrupt our entire economic and cultural life with $150,000 worth of jelly beans? Jelly, for God's sake, beans. This is madness. Where did he get the money to buy $150,000 worth of jelly beans? They knew it would have cost that much because they had a team of situation analysts pulled off another assignment and rushed to the sidewalk scene to sweep up and count the candies and produce findings which disrupted their schedules and threw their entire branch at least a day behind. Jelly beans. Jelly beans? Now wait a second. A second accounted for. No one has manufactured jelly beans for over a hundred years. Where did he get jelly beans? Well, that's another good question. More than likely, it will never be answered to your complete satisfaction. But then, how many questions ever are? The middle, you know. Here's the beginning, how it starts. A desk pad, day for day and turn each day. 9 o'clock, open the mail. 9.45, appointment with Planning Commission Board. 10.30, discuss installation progress charts with JL. 11.45, pray for rain. 12, lunch. And so it goes. I'm sorry, Ms. Grant, but the time for interviews was set at 2.30 and it's almost 5 now. I'm sorry you're late, but those are the rules. You'll have to wait till next year to submit application for this college again. And so it goes. I couldn't wait, Fred. I had to be at Pierre times by three, and you said you'd meet me under the clock in the terminal at 2.45, and you weren't there, so you know, I had to go on. You're always late, Fred. If you'd been there, we could have sewed it up together. But, well, as it was, I uh, took the order alone. And so it goes. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Atterley, in reference to your son Gerald's constant tardiness, I am afraid we will have to suspend him from school unless a more reliable method can be instituted, guaranteeing he will arrive at his classes on time. Granted, he is an exemplary student as marks are high. His constant flouting of the schedule, however, this school makes it impractical to maintain him in a system where the other children seem capable of getting where they are supposed to be on time. And so it goes. You cannot vote unless you appear at 8.45 a.m. I don't care if the script is good. I need it Thursday. Checkout time is 2 p.m. You got it here late. The job's taken. Sorry. Your salary's been docked for 20 minutes' time lost. God, what time is it? I gotta run. And so it goes. And so it goes, and so it goes. And so it goes, 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 tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. And one day, we no longer let time serve us. We serve time, and we are slaves of the schedule. Worshippers of the sun's passing bound into a life predicated on restrictions because, because the system will not function if we don't keep the schedule tight. Until it becomes more than a minor inconvenience to be late. It becomes a sin, then a crime, then a crime punishable by this. Effective 15 July 2389, 12 midnight. The Office of the Master Timekeeper will require all citizens to submit their time cards and cardio plates for processing. In accordance with Statute 5557-SGH-999, governing the revocation of time per capita, all cardio plates will be keyed to the individual holder, and what they had done was devise a method of curtailing the amount of life a person could have. If he was ten minutes late, he lost ten minutes of his life. An hour was proportionately worth more revocation. If someone was consistently tardy, he might find himself on a Sunday night receiving a communique from the master timekeeper that his time had run out and he would be turned off at high noon on Monday. Please straighten your affairs, sir. And so by this simple scientific expedient, utilizing a scientific process held dearly secret by the TikTok man's office, the system was maintained. It was the only expedient thing to do. It was, after all, patriotic. The schedules had to be met. After all, there was a war on. But wasn't there always? Now, that is really disgusting, said the Harlequin, when Pretty Alice showed him the wanted poster disgusting and highly improbable. After all, this isn't the days of desperadoes. A wanted poster? You know, Alice noted, you speak with a great deal of inflection. I'm sorry. No need to be sorry. You're always saying I'm sorry. You have such massive guilt effort, it's really very sad. I'm sorry. He repeated and then pursed his lips so the dimples appeared momentarily. You hadn't wanted to say that at all. I have to go out again. I have to do something. Alice slammed her coffee bulb down on the counter. Oh, for God's sake, Everett. Can't you stay home just one night? Must you always be out in a ghastly clown suit running around annoying people? Uh, uh, Alice, I'm... He stopped clapped the jester's hat onto his auburn patch with a tiny tingling of bells. He rose, rinsed out his coffee bulb at the tap and put it into the dryer for a moment. I have to go, Alice. She didn't answer. The fax box was purring. She pulled a sheet out, read it, threw it toward him on the counter. It's about you, of course. You're ridiculous. He read it quickly. It said the TikTok man was trying to locate him. He didn't care. He was going out to be late again. At the door, dredging for an exit line, he hurled back petulantly. Well, you speak with inflection, too. Alice rolled her pretty eyes heavenward. Oh, you're ridiculous. The Harlequin stalked out, slamming the door, which sighed shut softly and locked itself. There was a gentle knock. And Alice got up with an exhalation of exasperated breath and opened the door. He stood there. I'll be back about 10.30, okay? She pulled a rueful face. Why do you tell me that? Why? You know you'll be late. You know it. You are always late. So why do you tell me these dumb things? She closed the door. On the other side, the Harlequin nodded to himself. Eh, Yeah, she's right. She's always right. I'll be late. I'm always late. Why do I tell her these dumb things? He shrugged again and went off to be late once more. He had fired off the firecracker rockets that said... I will attend the 115th Annual International Medical Association invocation at 8 p.m. precisely. I do hope you will all be able to join me. The words had burned in the sky, and of course the authorities were there, lying in wait for him. They assumed, naturally, that he would be late. He arrived 20 minutes early. While they were setting up the spider webs to trap and hold him and blowing a large bullhorn, he frightened and unnerved them so. Their own moisturized encirclement webs sucked closed, and they were hauled up kicking and shrieking high above the amphitheater's floor. The Harlequin laughed and laughed and apologized profusely. The physicians, gathered in solemn conclave, roared with laughter and accepted the Harlequin's apologies with exaggerated bowing and posturing, and a merry time was had by all who thought the Harlequin... Was a regular fooferaw in fancy pants. All that is but the authorities who had been sent out by the office of the TikTok man, who hung there like so much dockside cargo hauled up above the floor of the amphitheater in a most unseemly fashion. The shopping level of the city was thronged with the thirsty colors of the buyers. Women in canary-yellow titans and men in pseudo tyrolean outfits that were jade and leather and fit very tightly, save for the balloon pants. When the Harlequin appeared on the still being constructed shell of the new efficiency shopping center, his bullhorn to his elfishly laughing lips, everyone pointed and stared, and he berated them. Why do you let them order you about? Why let them tell you to hurry and scurry like ants or maggots? Take your time. Saunter a while. Enjoy the sunshine. Enjoy the breeze. Let life carry you at your own pace. Don't be slaves of time. It's a hell of a way to die, slowly by degrees. Down with the TikTok man. Who's the nut? most of the shoppers wanted to know. Who's the nut? Oh, wow, I'm going to be late again. i got to run. And the construction gang in the shopping center received an urgent order from the office of the master timekeeper that the dangerous criminal, known as the Harlequin, was atop their spire, and their aid was urgently needed in apprehending him. The work crew said no. They would lose time on their construction schedule. But the TikTok man managed to pull the proper threads of governmental webbing, and they were told to cease work and catch that nitwit up there in the spire with a bullhorn. So, a dozen and more burly workers began climbing into their construction platforms, releasing the grab plates and rising toward the Harlequin. After the debacle, in which, through the Harlequin's attention to personal safety, no one was seriously injured, the workers tried to reassemble and assault him again. But it was too late. The Harlequin had vanished. It had attracted quite a crowd, however, and the shopping cycle was thrown off by hours, simply hours. The purchasing needs of the system were therefore falling behind, and so measures were taken to accelerate the cycle for the rest of the day. But it got bogged down and speeded up, and they sold too many float valves and not nearly enough whigglers which meant that the potley ratio was off, which made it necessary to rush cases and cases of spoiling smash-o to stores that usually needed a case only every three or four hours. The shipments were bollocksed. The trance shipments were misrooted. And in the end, even the swissle-skid industries felt it. Don't come back till you have him, the TikTok man said very quietly, very sincerely, extremely dangerously. They used dogs. They used probes. They used cardioplate cross-offs. They used teepers. They used bribery. They used stick tights. They used intimidation. They used torment. They used torture. They used finks. They used cops. They used search and seizure. They used falodorant. They used betterment incentive. They used fingerprints. They used birdalan. They used cunning. They used guile. They used treachery. They used Raul Mitkong, but he didn't help much. They used applied physics, they used techniques of criminology. And what the hell? They caught him. After all, his name was Everett C. Marm, and he wasn't much to begin with, except a man who had no sense of time. Rebant Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Yeah, get stuffed. The Harlequin replied, sneering. You've been late a total of 63 years, 5 months, 3 weeks, 2 days, 12 hours, 41 minutes, 59 seconds and .036111 microseconds. You've used up everything you can, and more. I'm going to turn you off. Eh, scare someone else. I'd rather be dead than live in a dumb world with a bogeyman like you. It's my job You're full of it You're a tyrant You have no right to order people around and kill them if they show up late You can't adjust You can't fit in Uh, Unstrap me and I'll fit my fist into your mouth You are a nonconformist That didn't used to be a felony It is now Live in the world around you I hate it It's a terrible world Not everyone thinks so. Most people enjoy order. I don't. And most of the people I know don't. Oh, that's not true. How do you think we caught you? I don't know. I'm not interested. A girl named Pretty Alice told us who you were. That's a lie. It's true. You unnerve her. She wants to belong, she wants to conform. do it already. Stop arguing with me. I'm not going to turn you off. You're an idiot. Rebent Harlequin. Eh, get stuffed. So they sent him to Coventry. And in Coventry they worked him over. It was just like what they did to Winston Smith in 1984, which was a book none of them knew about. But the techniques are really quite ancient. And so they did it to Everett C. Marm. And one day, quite a long time later, the Harlequin appeared on the communications web, appearing elfish and dimpled and bright-eyed, and not at all brainwashed. And he said he had been wrong, that it was a good, a very good thing indeed, to belong and be right on time. Hip-ho, and away we go. And everyone stared up at him on the public screens that covered an entire city block, and they said to themselves, Yeah, well, well, you see, he was just a nut after all. And if that's the way the system is run, then let's do it that way, because it doesn't pay to fight City Hall, or in this case, the TikTok man. So Everett Seamarm was destroyed, which was a loss because of what Thoreau said earlier. But you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And in every revolution, a few die who shouldn't. But they have to, because that's the way it happens. And if you make only a little change, then it seems to be worthwhile. Or, to make the point lucidly, Uh, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, um, I, uh, well, I I don't know how, um, well, uh, to tell you this, but, um, well, you were, uh, three minutes late. Uh, the schedule is, uh, um, (laughs) also a little bit off. He grinned sheepishly. That's ridiculous, murmured the TikTok man behind his mask. Check your watch. And then he went into his office, going... Mm -hmm. That story was titled... Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. A Nebula award winning short story by Harlan Ellison. It appears in the book Nebula Award Stories, edited by Damon Knight. This is Michael Hansen speaking. Technical production for MindWebs by Leslie Ilzenov. MindWebs is a production of WHA Radio in Madison a service of University of Wisconsin Extension This is the Wisconsin Educational Radio Network <laughs> The story for this half hour is The Squirrel Cage by Thomas Dish. It appears in Judith Merrill's collection, England Swings SF, an ace book. The terrifying thing, if that's what I mean, I'm not sure that terrifying is the right word, is that I'm free to write down anything I like, but that no matter what I do write down... It'll make no difference to me, to you, to whomever differences are made. But then what is meant by a difference? Is there ever really such a thing as change? I ask more questions these days than formerly. I'm less programmatic altogether. I wonder, is that a good thing? This is what it's like where I am. A chair with no back to it, so I suppose you'd call it a stool, a floor, walls, and a ceiling, which form as nearly as I can judge a cube. White, white light, no shadows, not even on the underside of the lid of the stool. Me, of course, the typewriter. I've described the typewriter at length elsewhere. Perhaps I shall describe it again. Yes, almost certainly I shall, but not now, later. But why not now? Why not the typewriter as well as anything else? Of the many kinds of questions at my disposal, why seems to be the most recurrent. Why is that? What I do is this. I stand up and walk around the room from wall to wall. It's not a large room, but it's large enough for present purposes. Sometimes I even jump, but there's little incentive to do that since there's nothing to jump for. The ceiling is quite too high to touch and the stool is so low that it provides no challenge at all. If I thought anyone were entertained by my jumping, but I have no reason to suppose that, Sometimes I exercise, push up, somersaults, headstands, isometrics, but never as much as I should. I'm getting fat, disgustingly fat and full of pimples. Besides, I like to squeeze the pimples on my face every so often I'll keep one sore and open with overmuch pinching in the hope that I'll develop an abscess and blood poisoning. But apparently the place is germ-proof. The thing never infects. It's well-nigh impossible to kill oneself here. The walls and floor are padded, and one only gets a headache beating one's head against them. The stool and typewriter both had hard edges, but whenever I've tried to use them, they're withdrawn into the floor. That's how I know there's someone watching. Once I was convinced it was God. I assumed that this was either heaven or hell, and I imagined that it would go on for all eternity just the same way. But if i were living in eternity already i couldn't get fatter all the time nothing changes in eternity so i console myself that i will someday die man is mortal i eat all i can to make that day come faster the times says that that will give me heart disease eating's fun and that's the reason i do a lot of eating what else is there to do after all there is this little nozzle, I suppose you would call it, that sticks out of one wall. And all I have to do is put my mouth to it. Not the most elegant way to feed, but it tastes damn good. Sometimes I just stand there hours at a time and let it trickle in, until I have to trickle. That's what the stool's for. It has a lid on it, the stool does, which moves on a hinge. It's quite clever in a mechanical way. If I sleep, I don't seem to be aware of it. Sometimes I do catch myself dreaming, but I can never remember what they were about. I'm not able to make myself dream at will. I would like that exceedingly. That covers all the vital functions but one, and there is an accommodation for sex to everything has been thought of. I have no memory of any time before this, and I cannot say how long this has been going on. According to today's New York Times, it's the 2nd of May. I don't know what conclusion one is to draw from that. From what I've been able to gather reading the Times, my position here in this room is not typical. Prisons, for instance, seem to be run along more liberal lines usually, but perhaps the Times is lying, covering up. Perhaps even the date has been falsified. Perhaps the entire paper every day is an elaborate forgery. Or maybe they are antiques, and I am living whole centuries after they were printed, a fossil. Anything seems possible. I have no way to judge. Sometimes I make up little stories while I sit here on my stool in front of the typewriter. Sometimes they're stories about the people in the New York Times, and those are the best stories. Sometimes they're just about people I make up, but those aren't so good because... Well, they're not so good because I think everybody's dead. I think I may be the only one left, sole survivor of the breed. And they just keep me here, the last one, alive in this room. This cage to look at, to observe, to make their observations of, to... I don't know why they keep me alive. And if everyone is dead, as I've supposed, then who are they? These supposed observers. Aliens? Are there aliens? I don't know. Why are they studying me? What do they hope to learn? Is it an experiment? What am I supposed to do? Are they waiting for me to say something, to write something on this typewriter? Do my responses or lack of responses confirm or destroy a theory of behavior? Are the testers happy with their results? They give no indications. They efface themselves, veiling themselves behind these walls, the ceiling, this floor. Perhaps no human could stand the sight of them. But maybe they are only scientists and not aliens at all. Psychologists at MIT perhaps, such as frequently are shown in the Times, blurred dotty faces, bald heads, occasionally a mustache, a certificate of originality. Or instead, young crew-cut army doctors studying various brainwashing techniques. Reluctantly, of course. History and a concern for freedom had forced them to violate their own privately held moral codes. Maybe I volunteered for this experiment. Is that the case? Oh, God, I hope not. Are you reading this, Professor? Or listening to it? Are you reading this, Major? Will you let me out now? I want to leave this experiment right now! Yeah. Well. We've been through that little song and dance before, me and my typewriter. We've tried just about every password there is, haven't we, typewriter? And as you can see, as you can hear, hmm, here we are still. They are aliens, obviously. Sometimes I write poems. Do you like poetry? Here's one of the poems I wrote. It's called Grand Central Terminal. Grand Central Terminal is the right name for what most people wrongly call Grand Central Station. This and other priceless information comes from the New York Times. Here it is, Grand Central Terminal. How can you be unhappy when you see how high the ceiling is? My, the ceiling's high, high as the sky, so who are we to be gloomy here? Why, there isn't even room to die, my dear. This is the tomb of some giant, so great that if he ate us, there would be simply no taste. Gee, what a waste that would be of you and me. And sometimes, as you can see, I just sit here. I sit here copying old poems over again, or maybe copying the poem that the Times prints each day. The Times is my only source of poetry. Alas, the day I wrote Grand Central Terminal, rather, a long time ago, years. I can't say exactly how many years, though. I have no measures of time here. No day, no night, no waking and sleeping, no chronometer. But the Times ticking off its dates... I can remember dates as far back as 1957. I wish I had a little diary that I could keep here in the room with me, some record of my progress, if I could just save up my old copies of the times. Imagine how over the years they'd pile up, towers and stairways and cozy burrows of newsprint. It would be a more humane architecture, would it not? This cube that I occupy does have drawbacks from the strictly human point of view. But I'm not allowed to keep yesterday's edition. It's always taken away, whisked off, before today's edition is delivered. I should be thankful, I suppose, for what I have. What if the Times went bankrupt? What if, as is often threatened, there were a newspaper strike? Boredom is not, as you might suppose, a great problem eventually. Very soon, in fact, boredom becomes a great challenge. A stimulus. My body. Would you be interested in my body? I used to be. I used to regret that there were no mirrors in here. Now, on the contrary, I'm grateful. How gracefully, in those early days, the flesh would wrap itself about the skeleton. Now, how it droops and languishes. I used to dance by myself, hours on end, humming my own accompaniment, leaping, rolling about, hurling myself, spread eagle against the padded walls. I became a connoisseur of kinesthesia. There's great joy in movement, free, unconstrained speed. Life's so much tamer now. Age dulls the edge of pleasure, hanging its wreaths of fat on the supple Christmas tree of youth. I have various theories about the meaning of life, of life here. If I were somewhere else in the world I know, from the New York Times, for instance, where so many exciting things happen every day that it takes half a million words to tell about them, Uh, There would be no problem at all. One would be so busy running around from 53rd Street to 42nd Street, from 42nd Street to the Fulton Street Fish Market, not to mention all the journeys one might make cross town, that one wouldn't have to worry whether life had a meaning. In the daytime, one could shop for a multitude of goods. Then an evening after dinner at a fine restaurant to the theater or cinema. Oh, life would be so full if I were living in New York. If I were free... I spend a lot of time like this imagining what New York must be like, imagining what other people are like, what I would be like with other people, and in a sense, my life here is full from imagining such things. One of my theories is that they, you know, ungentle listener, who they are, I'm sure. They are waiting for me to make a confession. This poses problems. Since I remember nothing of my previous existence, I don't know what I should confess. I've tried confessing to everything, political crimes, sex crimes... I especially like to confess to sex crimes. Traffic offenses, spiritual pride, my God, what haven't I confessed to? Nothing seems to work. Perhaps I just haven't confessed to the crimes I really did commit, whatever they were. Or perhaps, which seems more and more likely, the theories at fault. A brief hiatus. The times came, so I read the day's news and then nourished myself at the fount of life, and now I'm back at my stool. On one of the inner pages behind the political and international news was a wonderful story, headlined, Biologists Hail Major Discovery. Let me copy it out for your benefit. Washington, D.C. Deep-sea creatures with brains but no moths are being hailed as a major biological discovery of the 20th century. The weird animals, known as pogonophores, resemble slender worms. Unlike ordinary worms, however, they have no digestive system, no excretory organs, no means of breathing. The National Geographic Society says. Baffled scientists who first examined the Poganophores believe that only parts of the specimens had reached them. Biologists are now confident they have seen the whole animal but still do not understand how it manages to live. Yet they know it does exist, propagate, and even think after a fashion on the floors of deep waters around the globe. The female, the Pogonophore, lays up to 30 eggs at a time, a tiny brain from its rudimentary mental processes. All told, the Pogonophore is so unusual that biologists have set up a special phylum for it alone. This is significant because a phylum is such a broad biological classification that creatures as diverse as fish, reptiles, birds, and men are all included in the phylum Chordata. Settling on the sea bottom, a Pogonophore secretes the tube around itself and builds it up year by year to a height of perhaps five feet. And the tube resembles a leaf of white grass which may account for the fact that the animal went so long undiscovered. A Pogonophore apparently never leaves its self-built prison but crawls up and down inside it will. The worm-like animal may reach a length of 14 inches with a diameter of less than a twenty-fifth of an inch. Long tentacles way from its top end. Zoologists so once theorized that the Pogonophore, in an early stage, might store enough food in its body to allow it to fast later on, but young Pogonophores also lack a digestive system. It's amazing the amount of things a person can learn just by reading The Times every day. I always feel so much more alert after a good read of the paper, and creative to so hear with a story about Pogonophores striving The Memoirs of a Pogonophore Introduction. In May of 1961, I had been considering the purchase of a pet. One of my friends had recently acquired a pair of tarsiers. Another had adopted a boa constrictor, and my nocturnal roommate kept an owl caged above his desk. A nest or school of pogs was certainly one up on their eccentricities. Moreover, since Pogonophores do not eat, excrete, sleep, or make noise, they'd be ideal pets. In June, I had three dozen shipped to me from Japan at considerable expense. A brief interruption in the story. Do you feel that it's credible? Does it possess the texture of reality? I thought that by beginning the story by mentioning those other pets, I would clothe my invention in greater verisimilitude. Were you taken in? Well, being but an indifferent biologist, I had not considered the problem of maintaining adequate pressure in my aquarium. The Pogonophore is used to the weight of an entire ocean. I was not equipped to meet such demands. For a few exciting days, I watched the surviving pogs rise and descend in their translucent white shells. Soon even these died. Now resigned to the commonplace, I stocked my aquarium with Maine lobster for the amusement and dinners of occasional out-of-town visitors. I have never regretted the money I spent on them. Man's rarely given to know the sublime spectacle of the rising Pogonophore and then but briefly, although I had at the time only the narrowest conception of the thoughts that passed through the rudimentary brain of the sea worm, up, 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 down, down, down. I could not help admiring its persistence. The Pogonifor does not sleep. He climbs to the top of the inside passage of his shell, and then when he's reached the top, he retraces his steps to the bottom of his shell. The Pogonifor never tires of his self-imposed regimen, He performs his duty scrupulously and with honest joy. He is not a fatalist. The memoirs that follow the introduction are not allegory. I have not tried to interpret the inner thoughts of the Impogonophore. There's no need for that, since the Impogonophore himself has given us the most eloquent record of his spiritual life. It's transcribed on the core of translucent white shell in which he spends his entire life. Since the invention of the alphabet... It's been a common conceit that the markings on shells or the sand-etched calligraphy of the journeying snail are possessed of true linguistic meaning. Cranks and eccentrics down the ages have tried to decipher these codes, just as other men have sought to understand the language of the birds. Unavailingly, I do not claim that the scrawls and shells of common shellfish can be translated. The core of the Pogonophore shell, however, can be, for I've broken the code with the aid of the United States Army manual on cryptography obtained by what devious means I'm not at liberty to reveal, I've learned that the grammar and syntax of the phonographer has a secret language. Zoologists and others who would like to verify my solution of the crypt may reach me through the editor of this publication. In all 36 cases I've been able to examine, the indented traceries and the insides of these shells have been the same. Now, it's my theory that the sole purpose of the Pogonophore's tentacles is to follow the course of this message up and down the core of a shell and thus, as it were, to think. The shell is a sort of externalized stream of consciousness. It would be possible, and in fact, it is an almost irresistible temptation to comment on the meaning that these memoirs possess for mankind. Surely there is a philosophy compressed into these precious shells by nature herself. Before I begin my commentary, let's examine the text itself. The text. One. Up. Uppity. Up. Up. The top. Two. Down. Downy. Down. Down. Pump. The bottom. Three. A description of my typewriter. The keyboard is about one foot wide. Each key is flush to the next and marked with a single letter of the alphabet, or with two punctuation signs, or with one number and one punctuation sign. The letters are not ordered as they are in the alphabet. Alphabetically, but seemingly at random. It's possible that they are in code. Then there's a space bar. There's not, however, either a margin control or a carriage return. and platen's not visible, and I can never see the words I'm writing. What does it all look like? Perhaps it's made immediately into a book by automatic linotypists. Wouldn't that be nice? Or perhaps my words just go on and on in one endless line of writing. Or... Perhaps this typewriter is just a fraud and leaves no record at all. Some thoughts on the subject of futility. I might just as well be lifting weights as pounding at these keys or rolling stones up to the top of a hill from which they immediately roll back down. Yes, and I might as well tell lies as the truth. It makes no difference what I say. That is what is so terrifying. Is terrifying the right word? I seem to be feeling rather poorly today, but I've felt poorly before. In a few days, I'll be feeling all right again. I need only be patient. And then, what do they want of me here? If only I could be sure that I were serving some good purpose. I cannot help worrying about such things. Time is running out. I'm hungry again. I suspect I'm going crazy. That is the end of my story about the... Pogonophores. A hiatus. Don't you worry that I'm going crazy? What if I got catatonia? Then you'd have nothing to read, nothing to listen to. Unless they gave you my copies of the New York Times would serve you right. You, the mirror that has denied me, the shadow that I did not cast, my faithful observer who reads each freshly minted Ponce, reader, listener. You, horror show monster, bug eyes, mad scientist, army major, who prepares the wedding bed of my death and tempts me to it. You, other, speak to me. You. What shall I say, earthling? I, anything, so long as it's another voice in my own. Flesh that is not my own flesh lies that I do not need to invent for myself. I'm not particular, I'm not proud, but I doubt sometimes you won't think this is too melodramatic of me. I doubt sometimes that I'm real. You. I know the feeling. Extending the tentacle may I. I. Backing off later. Just now I thought we'd talk and you begin to fade. There's so much about you that I don't understand. Your identity's not distinct. You change from one being to another as easily as I might switch channels on a television set if I had one. You're too secretive as well. You should get about in the world more. Go places. Show yourself. Enjoy life. If you're shy, I'll go out with you. You let yourself be undermined by fear, however. You. Interesting. Yes, definitely most interesting. The subject evidences acute paranoid tendencies, fantasies with almost delusional intensity. Observe his tongue, his pulses, urine, his stools are irregular, his teeth are bad, he's losing hair. I. I'm losing my mind. You. He's losing his mind. I. I'm dying. You. You. He's dead. Fades until there's nothing but the golden glow, of the eagle on his cap, the glint from the oak leaves on his shoulders. But he has not died in vain. His country will always remember him, for by his death he has made this nation free. Curtain. Anthem. Ah, it's me again. Surely you haven't forgotten me? Your old friend, me. Yeah. Now, Listen carefully. This is my plan. I'm going to escape from this damn prison by God, and you're going to help me. Twenty people may hear and read what I write on this typewriter, and of those twenty, nineteen could see me rot here forever without batting an eyelash. But not number twenty. Oh, no. He, she, you still has a conscience. He, she, you will send me a sign, and when I've seen the sign, I'll know that someone out there is trying to help. Oh, I won't expect miracles overnight. It may take months, years even, to work out a foolproof escape. But just the knowledge that there's someone out there trying to help will give me the strength to go on from day to day. You know what I sometimes wonder? I sometimes wonder why the Times doesn't have an editorial about me. They state their opinion on everything else. What about me? I mean, isn't it an injustice the way I'm being treated? Doesn't anybody care? And if not, why not? Don't tell me they don't know I'm here. I've been years now writing, writing. Surely they have some idea. Surely someone does. These are serious questions. They demand serious appraisal. I insist that they be answered. I don't really expect an answer, you know. I have no false hopes left. None. I know there's no sign that'll be shown me. But even if there is, it'll be a lie. A lure to go on hoping. I know that I'm alone in my fight against this injustice. I know all that, and I don't care. My will is still unbroken, and my spirit free. From my isolation, out of the stillness, from the depths of this white, white light, I say this to you. I defy you. Do you hear that? I said, I defy you. Dinner again. What is the time I'll go to? While I was eating dinner, I had an idea for something. I was going to say here, but I seem to have forgotten what it was. If I remember, I'll jot it down. Meanwhile, I'll tell you about my other theory. My other theory is that this is a squirrel cage, you know, like the kind you find in a small town park. You might even have one of your own since they don't have to be very big. A squirrel cage is like most any other kind of cage, except it has an exercise wheel. The squirrel gets into the wheel and starts running, as running makes a wheel turn, and the turning of the wheel makes it necessary for him to keep running inside it. The exercise is supposed to keep the squirrel healthy. What I don't understand is why they put the squirrel in the cage in the first place. Don't they know what it's like for the poor little squirrel? Or don't they care? They don't care. I remember now what it was I'd forgotten. I thought of a new story. I call it An Afternoon at the Zoo. I made it up myself. It's very short and it has a moral. Here it is, An Afternoon at the Zoo. This is a story about uh, Alexandra. Alexandra was the wife of a famous journalist who specialized in science reporting. His work took him to all parts of the country, and since they had not been blessed with children, Alexandra often accompanied him. However, this often became very boring, so she had to find something to do to pass time. If she had seen all the movies playing in the town they were in, she might go to a museum or perhaps to a ball game if she were interested in seeing a ball game that day. One day she went to a zoo. Of course it was a small zoo, because this was a small town, tasteful, but not spectacular. There was a brook that meandered all around the grounds, ducks, and a lone black swan glided along the willow branches and waddled out into the lake to snap up breadcrumbs from the visitors. Alexandra thought the swan was beautiful. Then she went to a wooden building called the Rodentiary. The cages advertised rabbits, otters, raccoons, etc. Inside the cages was a litter of nibbled vegetables and droppings of various shapes and colors. The animals must have been behind the wooden partition sleeping. Alexandra found this disappointing, but she told herself that rodents were hardly the most important thing to see at any zoo. Nearby the rodentiary, a black bear was sunning himself on a rock ledge. Alexandra walked all about the demi loom of the bars without seeing other members of the bear's family. He was an enormous bear, and she watched the seals splash about in their concrete pool, and then she... Moved on to find a monkey house. She asked a friendly peanut vendor where it was. He told her it was closed for repairs. She said, how sad. The peanut vendor said, why don't you try snakes and lizards? Alexandra wrinkled her nose in disgust. She hated reptiles ever since she was a little girl. Even though the monkey house was closed, she bought a bag of peanuts and ate them herself. The peanuts made her thirsty, so she bought a soft drink and sipped it through a straw, worrying about her weight all the while. She watched peacocks and a nervous antelope, and then she turned off onto a path that took her into a glade of trees, poplar trees, perhaps. She was alone there, so she took off her shoes and wiggled her toes or performed some equivalent action. She liked to be alone like this, sometimes. A file of heavy iron bars beyond the glade of trees drew Alexandra's attention. Inside the bars, there was a man, dressed in a loose-fitting cotton suit, pajamas most likely held up about the waist with a sort of rope. He sat on the floor of his cage without looking at anything in particular, and the sign at the base of the fence read, Cordate. How lovely, Alexandra exclaimed. Actually, that's a very old story, and I tell it in a different way every time. Sometimes it goes on from the point where I left off. Sometimes Alexandra talks to the man behind the bars. Sometimes they fall in love and she tries to help him escape. Sometimes they're both killed in the attempt. And this is very touching. Sometimes they get caught and are put behind the bars together. But because they love each other so much, imprisonment is easy to endure. That's also touching in its way. Sometimes they make it to freedom. After that, though, after they're free, I never know what to do with the story. However, I'm sure that if I were free myself, free of this cage, it would not be a problem. One part of the story doesn't make much sense. Who would put a person in a zoo? Me, for instance. Who would do such a thing? Aliens? Are we back to aliens again? Who can say about aliens? I mean, I don't know anything about them. My theory, my best theory, is that I'm being kept here by people, just ordinary people. It's an ordinary zoo, and ordinary people come by to look at me through the walls. They read the things I type on this typewriter, as it appears on a great illuminated billboard, like the ones that spell out the news headlines on the sides of the Times Tower and 42nd Street. When I write something funny, they may laugh, and when I write something serious, such as an appeal for help, they probably get bored and stop reading. Or vice versa, perhaps. In any case, they don't take what I say very seriously. None of them care that I'm inside here. To them, I'm just another animal in a cage. You might object that a human being is not the same thing as an animal. But isn't he? After all, they, the spectators, seem to think so. In any case, none of them is going to help me get out. None of them thinks it's at all strange or unusual that I'm in here. None of them thinks it's wrong. That's the terrifying thing. Terrifying? It's not terrifying. How can it be? It's only a story, after all. Maybe you don't think it's a story because you're out there reading it on the billboard, but I know it's a story because I have to sit here at the stool making it up. Oh, it might have been terrifying once upon a time when I first got the idea, but I've been here now for years, years. The story has gone on far too long. Nothing can be terrifying for years on end. I only say it's terrifying because, you know, I have to say something, something or other. The only thing that could terrify me now is if someone were to come in, if they came in and said, All right, you can go now. That, truly, would be terrifying. You've heard The Squirrel Cage, a story by Thomas Dish. It appears in the collection edited by Judith Merrill called England Swings SF, an Ace publication. This is Michael Hansen, technical operation for this program by Marsha Phillips. Mindwebs is produced at WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension.